If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to finish out end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9 today. If you were here last week, uh, last week we did a deep dive, pun, pun intended right there, a deep dive through the Hebrew concept of tahom, which is the Hebrew word, not Greek, but Hebrew word, for the deep chaos water, the uncreated state by which God creates the world. So in our minds, when we think of what the world looked like before creation, we try to think of like nothing, which is really weird, and it doesn't usually do us any good trying to think of nothing, because then you think of like a black blank slate, which is something, so that's not nothing. In the ancient mind, when they would think of the uncreated state, every cosmology from Egypt to Babylon to the Canaanites, they imagined this dark chaos waters. And Genesis does the same thing. But the contrast was that we talked about last week is that rather than God emerging out of that chaos water, which is what happens in the other cosmology stories, rather God is outside of it. God is the creator of it. And then he brings his spirit to hover over the tahom, and he calms the chaos waters into what the Hebrew calls chamayim, or just calm waters. And we use that as, as this kind of launch point to overlay with the story in Matthew 8, where Jesus calms the ocean, where he calms the Sea of Galilee in a giant storm. I guess not an ocean, but the sea. He, he calms the chaos waters with rebuking, which is the same way the Bible reflects on Genesis chapter 1, showing us and showing his disciples that he has the exact same authority that Yahweh has, that he in fact is Yahweh embodied in flesh with the same authority over deep chaos waters able to calm them. And that really brings us to the theme of these passages. Um, if you'll remember, I don't have the image today, but a couple weeks ago I brought up this little image where uh, this section of Matthew, chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, um, and, and kind of even past chapter 9 into chapter 10, tells these stories, uh, nine miracle stories. And it's broken down, well, there'll be three miracles, and then Jesus will have a quick, quick little blurb about following him, three more miracles, and then next week we'll talk about the call for Matthew to follow him, and then three more miracles following that. And each of these three categories of three, these three sections, have a theme to it. So the first three we talked about is this theme all about how Jesus was going to love the outcast. Uh, he was going to go to the leper in an outcast world where a leper would never have been accepted and touch him and heal him. He's going to go to the centurion that was a pagan Roman and heal the centurion's servant. Peter's mother-in-law, who's an elderly woman at this point, that probably uh, would have not had the same rights that he as a man did. And he's crossing all of these gaps. And then this next set of stories has to do with what I would call authority. How Jesus is dealing with his authority and interacting through his authority in the world. So simply put, if we could just summarize all this up and all of these stories together, we might come to the conclusion to just say, Jesus has authority. It's probably not that revolutionary to you, but so much authority, in fact, that, that when his disciples look to see and notice this level of authority, they look and they ask in fear in verse 27, uh, the men were amazed and they ask, what kind of man is this? Now hold on to that question, and let's start reading in verse 28, and we'll go through chapter 9, uh, verse 8. It says this, when he had come to the other side, so they were on a boat, they come to the other side to a region known as the Gadarenes, a, a pagan, a Greek region in the area, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they shouted, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
And a long way off from them, a large herd of pigs were feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended the, uh, them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So he got in a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own town. And just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. And seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your heart? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up, and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck, and they gave glory to God, who had given such authority to men. Thinking about authority is a really weird thing for us, um, because I, I would just go ahead and say, like, none of us like authority. It's really interesting because you can invite authority into your life and you can say, I really need some help with this. I want someone that knows more than I. I'm going to submit under their authority. And then the second like it challenges what you want, your brain goes, I don't like that person anymore. Don't tell me what to do. You guys, have you ever done this? Um, since, since Griffin has been born, uh, it's been a struggle trying to get to the gym, which was a big part of my usually daily routine. Um, so I decided to convince Haley, like, let's get an exercise bike, like, you know, one of the bikes that you connect to your iPad through Bluetooth, and it tracks how heavy you pedal and how fast you're going, and uh, then it ranks you. So you can uh, take online classes through these instructors, um, and so I'll have my iPad set up, and I'm biking, and I have this guy that I pay to watch videos of him tell me how to bike. And I understand that's nonsensical, but that's just where I am in life right now, okay? But I pay to have this guy, like, yell at me through a screen, and he'll say things like, turn your difficulty up to 29 and get that uh, cadence speed up to 100. And then I yell at him, like, don't tell me what to do, Michael. Like, that matters. Like, I invite him into my life to tell me what to do to get mad when he tells me what to do. Do you guys do this type of thing? Right? We do this all the time. Or uh, then, then I'll be like, well, I bike today, and that's a good excuse now to eat some Oreos before bed tonight, so I'll go get Oreos. And Haley will say, you know those aren't good for you. Like, you're, you're just defeating the purpose of exercising by eating those. And she's right, and I know she means the best for me, but my brain goes, don't tell me what to do. I'll eat 50 Oreos if I want to eat 50 Oreos. Like, that's how we respond to authority. There's just something innate in us that responds poorly to authority. And the other side of that coin is when we gain authority, there's something in us that, like, wants to take off and run with that authority in horrible ways. This is if any teacher uh, is in here and you've ever done, I don't know if teachers do this anymore, but when I was little, uh, if they would have to leave the room for a few minutes, they might uh, get a name taker. You, did you guys have teachers that did this? And they would, like, hand the teacher, a uh, student, the marker, like, write anyone's name on the board up here that acts out while I'm gone. You want to watch a kid's persona change in like three seconds? A kid will rat out his best friend if it means he gets to write that friend's name on the board and have some authority over him. That's what we do, right? We, we don't like authority, but the second we get it, we take off running for it. And that's, 
you know, when it comes to online exercise, biking, and Oreos, and name-taking, it's not that big of a deal, but for anyone that's actually seen the much uglier side of human authority, from anyone working under the shift manager that's borderline verbally abusive, to anyone who's experienced a single-sided authoritative relationship, um, even to the heavy stuff, like from parents that were supposed to love you and didn't the right way, or in a romantic relationship where you were treated poorly by the other person, then you know what that's like. And it's no wonder most everyone is skeptical of authority at best and downright, downright combatant towards authority at worst. And depending on your history and your dealings with people in that capacity and how you viewed that, you're likely going to react differently to this phrase, Jesus has authority. So while we can start right from the top, Jesus has authority, the question we have to follow that up with is, what does Jesus do with that authority? It's a really key question in Scripture that we need to really understand. What does Jesus do with his authority? And the answer is really interesting because it changes depending on who or what he's dealing with. So here, here we have two stories, technically three, but we read the first one last week. So two stories today. And the first story, the, the one with casting out the demons from these two demon-possessed men, is another setup reference that's setting the stage for the final story. So I really want to focus on that second story more, but I understand there's a lot going on in this first. So give me five minutes to try to compact all of this in for you, and then we'll jump into the second story. Verse 28, when he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men met him as no one could pass that way. So right from the top, I know it's a fun conversation for everyone in the room, we have to talk a little bit about demons. Yay. Whatever your first inclination is, uh, just kind of table that for me. I've learned that generally uh, in modern Western world, we approach demons in one of two ways. Uh, you know, you have your group that's like, hey, demons are very real. Uh, they're scary. Don't go anywhere near that stuff. You're probably better off to like not eat deviled eggs and not use a dirt devil vacuum cleaner. Just stay away. Um, and we have that. I went to my high school mascot was the Blue Devils. And I had people in my school that were like, they left the school because they couldn't be the Blue Devils. Um, so we have that stance. Then we also have this other stance kind of on the other side of the spectrum that's like, whatever that is, it's primitive, it's ancient, we've learned more since then, we know that stuff like that doesn't exist. Everything can be defined through math and microscopes, so let's just not worry about this anymore, skip over it and go to the next thing. And I would just invite you, whichever side you're on, uh, or in the middle, just table that and hold really quickly to a Hebraic idea of this demonic realm that we might say. Because in the biblical mindset, there seems to be three points of brokenness in our world, of brokenness and despair. We have chaos, that's what we talked about last week with the Hebrew concept of to home and the dark chaos waters. But you also have evil, which is what we would tie to with the devil and demons. But then you also have human sin. So we might refer to this to some extent as the world, the flesh, and the devil, if you've heard that three phrase put together, but chaos, evil, and human sin. I want to focus on those last two today. And while the Bible does put some overlap there, in the biblical understanding, there is distinction between evil and between human sin. In the biblical mindset, evil is more deep. It's, the, it's deeper than just the disobedient actions of humans. It's something about the spiritual presence within the world that co-ops humans into doing things that 
is wrong and bad. And yes, the human is held responsible, but there's just something more in depth from that. Something more heinous, something more terrible. And it's this evil spiritual presence that works to draw creation back into chaos. That's the idea, that evil would be dragging us back to the home, to the uncreated state of the chaos water. So these evil spiritual creatures, which the Bible says exists and is interacting within the world, they're anti-human, they're anti-life, they're anti-relationship, they're anti-good. And while you can't see them and you can't smell them and you can't notice them with math and a microscope, they're working. They're working to disassemble the very good things that God created through temptation and prompting us to lie to one another and take advantage of one another and hurt one another. And you can look at that and you can say, oh, that's nonsense. But for the vast majority of human history, there's something more than just chemicals in our brain misfiring that causes this evil to exist. There's something more powerful. There's something evil in this world. And there's times then where people created in the image of God are so overtaken by this evil presence that they embody that full reality of irrational, self-destructive, and dangerous tendencies of hurting others. The Bible never gives us a formula for how that happens. It's never addressed. But when it happens, the Bible takes note that it's devastating and it's overwhelming. And what it looks like then is very much like the chaos waters of the Tahome embodied inside of a person. This is exactly what Matthew gets at right here in verse 29. Or sorry, verse 28. Uh, when, when he had heard them, when he came to the other side to the region of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. And then notice this. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. That phrase should cue you into the story we read last week when the text talks about the storm that was so violent that nothing could pass it, that Jesus has to speak into it. So demons cause the chaos to draw things back into uncreated order. Are you tracking the, the logic of thought in a Hebraic mind at this point? So somehow the very presence of these men, the very presence of these demons within these men, put... Uh, Chaos back in the world, danger, violence, and then the presence of Jesus comes into that, and Jesus actually does the opposite. He puts them on edge. So Jesus shows up. These beings actually tremble in fear at the very presence of Jesus because they know who he is and who holds the authority. So when the disciples see Jesus command the waters and the chaos into calm, they freak out in fear and awe, and they ask the question, what kind of man is this? When the demons just sense the presence of Jesus, they see him, and look at what they say. 29, suddenly they shouted, what have you come to do with us, son of God? They don't ask what kind of man this is. They know very well what kind of man this is. They know Jesus' identity. They don't wonder in recognition of his authority. They ask instead to be moved to a herd of pigs rather than to be cast out. And there's so many implications to be drawn out of that we don't have time for. There's been plenty of attempts at trying to comment about the impurity of pigs in Jewish religion versus demons and how they go together. And there's something to all of that. I, I, I agree with that. But here's what I want you to do for this story. Just let the absurdity of this story sour with you. Because it's an absurd story. I mean, if you could just imagine 
being there, the absurdity of the story is crazy. Because that's, that's the point. That's precisely what these evil beings are. They're absurdities within God's good and right creation. So they ask to be cast into the pigs. Jesus gives one word. He doesn't say anything else. The only red text in this passage, if you have a red letter Bible, is go. And so when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep banks into the sea where they perished in the water. Remember those three things that contribute to the brokenness and the evilness of the world? Chaos, evil, and sin? Well, from these first two stories, what does Jesus have authority over? We know he has authority over the deep chaos waters in Genesis 1. And now we know he has authority over the demonic evil of the present world, which what does that demonic evil do? It goes into the pigs and takes them into the chaos waters. That, that's the theme Matthew's wanting you to pick up on right here. And we know Jesus then has authority over both of those things. And it's that then that sets the stage for this next story. So 9 verse 1 and 2. So he got into the boat because the town didn't want him here after seeing what happened. He crossed over and he came back to his own hometown. And then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. And seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, given the previous two stories, is this surprising? Probably not. I mean, Jesus has authority, and if he has authority over chaos, and he has authority over evil, if we're tracking Matthew's progression, it only makes sense that he has authority over sin. That's the three things. Jesus has authority over all three of them. But while this isn't a surprise, it is a bit unexpected, you have to admit. Because given the first three stories that Matthew gave, the leper, the centurion's servant, the, the mother, Peter's mother-in-law, when people who are obviously sick and obviously in need of help encounter Jesus, what does Jesus do? He heals them. But in this story, there's a different formula. Now, Matthew rather abbreviates this story quite a bit. Um, it's a really common story in Mark and Luke's gospel that you've probably heard in more detail uh, because everything points to the fact that this is the story where Jesus is teaching in a house and it's really, really, really crowded uh, and they have this, this friend, these four men have this friend on a stretcher that they can't get through the front door of the house and in an act of desperation, they get on the roof, they tear the thatched roof apart and you guys know this story, they lower him down before Jesus so, so that's the, the scene. And I think Matthew, because Mark was probably written first, Matthew knows that this has been written in detail in Mark. So he's not trying to give you the details. He's trying to convince you of what Jesus has authority over here. But just have that in your mind, this crowded house, the roof's tearing open, this man is lowered before Jesus. And Jesus, as he's teaching, looks at this man and he says, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're this paralyzed man, or if you're one of his friends, how are you feeling? And, and be honest. Don't be religious. I understand. That's, you know, I'm feeling good. I get it. Forgiveness of sins is a good thing. That's great. But they know the story circulating around Capernaum at this time. They know that there's something about the power and presence of this man that brings healing to all types of people to just like their paralyzed friend. And so that's what they're looking for. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. There has to be some, like, just quick little mental note in this that says, okay, that's great, Jesus, I'm really grateful, but, like, there's still the problem that you've yet to deal with. And it seems that Jesus does this intentionally. 
that Jesus first forgives him for the sake of what he's going to do next. But then that asks the question or demands the question, well, why this order? And Matthew doesn't say. He doesn't explain why behind it. But I think there are some reasonable conclusions to draw, especially given first century Jewish beliefs on sin and and the body. So uh, if you remember in John chapter 9, there's this story where Jesus and his disciples, they encounter a blind man, and his disciples look at the blind man and look to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is blind? And Jesus says, you're thinking about it all the wrong way. It's not about that. But that's a little taste. It's a clue into how this world viewed a broken body in correlation to sin. For most first century Jews, if you saw someone who had a physical ailment, your first thought wasn't, oh, poor them, I feel bad for them. The first thought is, I wonder what kind of sins that guy committed to be in that type of shape. It has to be pretty bad. And the culture in this, if this is the the, the culture this paralyzed man grows up in, then this is what he hears his entire life. For his whole life, he probably had people look at him and maybe even say out loud, I don't know what this guy did, but it must have been pretty bad given his condition. And if that's what he hears over and over and over again, then there's probably a good chance that that's what he believes about himself as well. And even if he can't pinpoint a sin, there must be something in his life that God is mad at him for, that some sin that he's being punished for, and since he's never gotten any better, it just proves God's disliking for him even more from there. And so when Jesus responds with this first, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven, I believe he's actually tuning into something deep within this man's spirit. Now again, Matthew doesn't say any of this, so, so take it for what it's worth. But I believe if Jesus were to heal this man's body, but never address this chasmic gap between him and how he views God, if that case were true, would this man be truly healed? So Jesus speaks to him. But the really interesting thing is if you take how he speaks to this man and compare how he speaks to the storm in the first story or how he speaks to the demons in the second story, it's a complete opposite way of talking. In the first story, Jesus rebukes the storm in power. In the second, he causes the demons to tremble at his very presence and then commands them to go with one word. But then he looks at this paralytic man and he looks him at it in his eye and he addresses the man's humanity. Have courage, son. Have courage, my son, if you have an ESV. Like we talked about, it, it's the Greek word technon. It's used almost 100 times in Scripture, uh, and it's very minimally translated right here with the term son. It can be son. It can be translated child. But far, often, more, far more often than not, it's in reference to little children or little boy. So I personally really like the translation, and it's more of an interpretation with it, but to just say that Jesus looks at him and says, Why are you afraid? Have courage, little boy. Your sins are forgiven. I think there's something vital about that in this passage because it's differentiating the way Jesus lives into his authority in the face of chaos or in the face of evil as opposed to in the face of a human who has been hurt by said chaos and evil. And while this man has contributed to the sin of the world, he still has sin. 
Jesus recognizes that this man is still broken, and even though he is a product of brokenness, he then goes on to create brokenness and thereby needs forgiveness. Jesus responds with a completely different tone. Little boy, you don't have to be afraid. Take courage. God's not angry with you. You are forgiven. And with that phrase, then comes this ongoing conflict between Jesus and the religious elite. Look at verse 3. At this, at this saying, your sins are forgiven, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. They're offended. So why on earth would they be offended? Well, as any Jewish person, uh, as a Jewish person knows, you can't just have your sins forgiven arbitrarily on the whims of some random rabbi. It doesn't work that way, Jesus. There are very clear rules about how sin is to be dealt with and forgiven regarding the temple in Jerusalem and sacrifices that have to be made every time there's sin. It, it demands a trip. So, so let's just take that and put ourselves again in the mindset of a first century Jewish person. Let's say you live 70 miles outside Jerusalem along the Sea of Galilee and you work on fishing boats, and your neighbor has a fishing boat, and he just keeps catching all the fish, and you're noticing that your son is starting to get hungry because you've not ca caught the fish, and they're just thriving on fish over there. And you think, you know what? This really isn't just my neighbor catches fish. I don't. I need to make this balance better. And so you set out to go ahead and balance things on your own, sneak out one night, and you go ahead and rip some holes in his net to make sure he doesn't catch as many fish for the next day. So from there on out, you go out, you catch more fish than what he catches, and you feel really good about yourself until you're going into the marketplace to sell fish, and you notice your neighbor's son, and it's actually flip-flop because now your neighbor's son is starting to starve. And you realize that you really messed up, you contributed to the brokenness of the world, and you need to ask forgiveness from Yahweh for the sins that you've had, the sins that you've committed. Well, what does that look like? In our world, we think, well, just pray and confess. But in a Jewish world, it's far more intensive than just pray and confess. You actually have to do something. If you're to be forgiven, you have to make a trip to Jerusalem. Not only do you have to make a trip to Jerusalem, but you have to go find a lamb that's spotless and carry that lamb with you to the temple. So here, let me show you a picture of, of the temple here so that you can kind of lock this into your mind. So this is a recreation of the second temple. So this is the temple that Jesus uh, would have been around. He would have walked into. Um, this is just over to the left, which you can't see in this picture. There's a colonnade. That's where Jesus would have flipped tables. So I just want you to imagine. You're this person, 70 miles. You have to make a 70-mile journey to Jerusalem. You get there with your lamb, and you line up outside this small golden door there at the bottom of the picture. And there's a line of people all waiting to have their sins forgiven. You finally get up to the door, and a priest comes, and he, he opens the door. His once white robes now stained scarlet from the hundreds of lambs he's killed the day for the forgiveness of sins for Jerusalem and the Jewish people. He then asks if you have your lamb, and you present your lamb to the priest. And as you're walking towards this altar, he asks you about what sin you've committed. So you begin to confess to him, well, I've coveted my neighbor's things. And in response to that covet, I decided to sabotage his career, thus putting his family in danger um, and creating chaos within this world again. And there, as you walk up to the altar, knowing that that's your sin that caused that evil, the priest then lays this lamb on the altar and slits its throat. Just watches this lamb bleed out the life deprived right there in front of you. And it's symbolic, but it's so much more than just symbolic. Because you recognize that instead of you dying, God has now allowed this lamb to die instead. 
You were the one that deserved to have your throat slit because of that. You were the one that deserved death. But God said, rather than you dying, here's this lamb. He's to be killed instead of you. The priest then takes the lifeless body of the lamb, getting ready to burn it on the altar of sacrifice, and he looks to you and he says, go, your sins are forgiven. And you walk out. What type of emotion is that? I'm not sure we can even ratify what that feels like to us. Because there's, there's joy in that your sins are forgiven, but there's this weight that you walk out recognizing that the evil things you do, the sins you commit, they're not just arbitrary like, well, you should have obeyed your parents and you didn't, but they actually create brokenness in this world. There is real and tangible hurt that comes out of our actions that are selfishness and, and evil. And yet you know, the God who loves you provided a way out. Your sins are forgiven. Now go with me back to the paralyzed man, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. There's a good chance he had never done that. Good chance he has never experienced that. I mean, it's difficult enough getting 70 miles to Jerusalem with a full-bodied person. I mean, getting it where four people have to carry you on your stretcher is likely impossible. This man had likely never experienced that phrase from a priest, your sins are forgiven. Or even if he had, it was probably in his childhood when his parents carried him into the temple with them. His dad carried him in with them. And now here he lays, broken, physically, spiritually, and with nothing but the kindest of loves, the Savior looks him in the eyes and says, little boy, don't be afraid. God is not angry. Your sins are forgiven. No sacrifice made. No blood spilt. Jesus pronouncing the same phrase the priests would have pronounced right here in this random house. And that feels really good. But here's the holdup. I mean, does just pronouncing forgiveness of sins do anything tangible? Is there a scientific formula that we can follow through a note and say, yeah, your sins are forgiven, ah, yours aren't? I mean, any, you could go this afternoon, you could go to Walmart, and you could stand outside of Walmart, and just as people walked in and say, good morning, good afternoon, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, welcome to Walmart, your sins are forgiven. Like, any person can do that, it doesn't mean anything. Congratulations, your sins are forgiven. There's no way to prove that, and this is what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus is going to document, hey, your sins are forgiven, knowing that, A, he has the authority to do it, but, B, every scribe and Pharisee is going to say, hey, wait, he can't do that. That's blasphemy. And then Jesus is going to respond to that question. Perceiving their thoughts, verse 4, he said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? To which I would just pose that question back to you. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's not a trick question. It's far easier just to say, your sins are forgiven. Again, anyone can do that. But Jesus says, I know what you're thinking about, and you don't believe this is true. So, verse 6, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you really want to doubt I can forgive sins? Doubt this. Walk. I mean, can, you, can you feel the authority of Jesus just set into this household? 
And again, the people, verse 8, they're all struck. They're, they're amazed. And when the crowd saw this, verse 8, they were all struck, and they gave glory to God. It, it totally shatters their categories for making sense of the world. In fact, they still can't make sense of this whole thing. But there's this one thing they know to be true. This man, whatever kind of man he is, he's got full authority over chaos. He can speak into a storm and the waves and the wind, it's silent. He has full authority over evil so that even the spiritual beings who exist for the sheer purpose of creating chaos and evil of this world, drawing things back into discreation, fear and tremble at his very presence and obey at the single command of a word that he gives. And yet, that's not the way he wants to hold authority over humanity. Because to this human, both because of sin and absolutely destroyed by sin and evil and chaos, paralyzed, he looks with kind compassion and he says, you think that God is mad with you, but I'm telling you, be courageous. Your sins are forgiven. This is the type of savior that we serve. This is the type of authority that he has over us. He has absolute authority over chaos and evil, but when it comes to you, his first response is not to speak in rebuke or command. Well, those things will come, but when he first looks at you, his authority is one of love and kindness to say, hey, you think God operates this way. You think your sin has separated you so far that he is so mad at you that he can't stomach your presence. But I'm just telling you, little boy, little girl, child of God, your sins are forgiven. That's our Savior. That's his authority over us. That's his love that he wants to pour out on you. No matter what you've done, no matter what sin and chaos you've created, this is Jesus' desire that he will have the authority to forgive your sin. Because we can say Jesus has authority. That's so true. But what Matthew closes, the crescendo of these three stories is not Jesus has authority over chaos. It's not Jesus has authority over evil. The crescendo story is Jesus has authority over sin, and guess what he's come to do? Forgive it. That Jesus has the authority to forgive your sin. How? You remember that lamb? That every time someone would walk into the temple and they would confess their sin, they would slit the throat of the lamb and watch the blood be poured out. That Jesus would refer to himself as that lamb. And he would go, not to the temple, but to a hillside outside of the city. And there his blood would be spilt. And there, for once and all, he would die a sacrificial death in your place. That at the blood of Jesus, you might look to the cross and know that he has the authority to forgive sins because he died in your place. So we don't have to sacrifice lambs. We don't have to watch the lifeless body of an animal be thrown onto a burning pile. We instead look to a cross where the sinless Savior died so that he can have the authority to forgive your sins. 
And the story doesn't end there because Jesus, like we've already talked about, doesn't just have authority over your sins. He also has authority over chaos and evil. So then when he's buried and he goes to the place of the dead, he's locked in the tomb. He returns to the home. Guess what he still has authority over? Sin and death and chaos and evil. It cannot conquer him. And so he reemerges victorious out of the grave and he says, now you know for sure that my authority, because I'm telling you which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to conquer death. And our Savior conquered death. Now I don't know what this means for you. I, I don't know how you're feeling right now. Maybe you're looking at this and saying, Philip, I know this. This is great. Then maybe just like the people in response, it's a response of awe and just giving glory to God. Just a turnaround response of God to you be the glory. I love what you've done. Worship. But maybe you're like this paralyzed man. And maybe you're, you're somewhere out there and you're like, Philip, but you don't understand how broken I am. You, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. There's no way Jesus could look at me and say, Little child, your sins are forgiven. And I would just say, you have no idea what Jesus is capable of. That if you would come to him and lay your life down and say, Jesus, I need you, then he has the authority to conquer chaos and evil and then forgive your sins on the spot. If that's something you want to do, then I'll be right here. I, I would love to do that with you. But this is your time to respond to that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your kindness and love. I pray sincerely that you would make this place a place where redemption is possible. God, that we would trust that we have a Savior who holds authority. God, authority over the chaos that we fret and we worry about because we just don't know how sustainable this world is and what about this and what about that. God, you have authority over that. That, God, you have authority over evil, the things that would threaten us and threaten your church, the things that would threaten to tempt us and take us away from your good word and your will. You have authority. And it's with that supreme authority, then, that you approached humanity in meekness and gentleness and love and said, little children, your sins are forgiven. God, may we become a church that knows that. And if there's anyone in this room that, that can't reconcile that, would you, through your Holy Spirit, begin to work within their hearts that they may know the authority of a God who forgives their sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.